Previously on Storylogical. <laughs> <laughs> that is what a reasonable person would always say. I see through your ruse. A real human would never be so rusable. Uh, <laughs> a real human <laughs> would never resort to such ruses. No. No. I would love to see the Tim Burton directed version of any Karen Russell yeah, story ever. Just, yeah. I mean, if you, if you need to make it stop motion, do it. Get Although a Kickstarter going. I'd rather going. not because that means it'll take five years to make. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Tim Burton, are you listening? <laughs> this is your material. Go buy a collection by Karen Russell. It's all right there. I don't know what you're doing with your life right now. You're probably making like Charlie and the, and the Licorice Factory or something. Don't do that. No more Licorice Factory. It's ridiculous. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. The story I picked is Singing My Sister Down by Margot Lanigan, as recommended to us by Sarah Saab. And the story is from Margot's 2004 collection, Black Juice. The collection won two World Fantasy Awards, and the story was nominated for both the Hugo and the Nebula. The story is told from the point of view of a young boy who, along with his family and other people from the village, is watching his sister's slow, slow execution. Chariots of fire style, yo. <laughs> uh, and it's execution by sinking in tar. I wanted to start with reading the opening paragraph of the story. We all went down to the tar pit with mats to spread our weight. Icky was standing on the bank, her hands in a metal twin loop behind her. She'd stopped sulking. Now she looked more starey and puzzled. Chief Barnarandra pointed to the pit. Out you go then, girl. You must walk out there to the middle and stand. When you picked a spot, your people can join you. So it stepped out. Very ordinary. Yeah, so the sinking, it takes all day. What do they do with their time while they're watching their sister slash daughter slash friend die? <laughs> yeah, they bring, they dance, <laughs> they wave their hands. They sing, they play instruments, and they picnic, and they talk, and they have incredible moments of truth and incredible moments of sadness and horror, and it's very beautiful. There's so much that's funny in the story, and there's so much that is not sad. <laughs> uh, that's That's a real trick when the story is about... Uh, your sister or daughter or niece who is slowly being consumed by an, un an uncomfortably warm pit of tar. And it made me think of like, when you see a, a really amazing pencil sketch. Like the thing that makes the pencil sketch often is the level of contrast in the, in the deepest darks and the, and the brightest whites that, that the person has gotten on the page. And, and that exists in the story in ways that I loved and that it compresses a lot of how it feels to live into into this one sinking moment where as you're watching someone you love die as as you are being confronted with with this loss you're you're trying to sing over it you're trying to erase it with happiness and then and then eventually trying to face it and come to terms with it and and it's an amazing back and forth of the girl who is dying trying to keep a happy face for her family and the family trying to make this a joyous thing for the girl who is dying and themselves and yeah um i think the ordinary is is such an important idea here like they've normalized this horror normalized this disgusting way of executing people 
uh, and Icky seems to be such a young thing as well. It's not. I can't quite tell if she's quite tell if she's like actually a child or just a very young adult. Yeah, it is. It is ordinary, and it 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 made me think of like the canon of crime and punishment that exists. That like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery and the story we talked about last week from George Saunders' Escape from Spiderhead about the 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 systems that are designed by society for punishment and and literatures storied tradition of putting us into it and what most of the stories do like margot lanigan does is we we begin in the middle of the enactment of the punishment and so it allows the story in its in its beginning to kind of implicate us because we begin with the person is guilty the person is presumed guilty there's no discussion about whether or not they're guilty or if the punishment is particularly deserved like the and that's such such an important part of the story that we never really get a sense of justification or or whether or not you know she should have done it or yeah because you know when you said it's it's normalized like it's it's no different than everything that is normal in our world like it, it is normalized in the sense that it's been going on forever and so in a way yeah there's no reason to talk about whether the punishment is deserved or not because in a way, all of these stories function in a sense of like, on the one hand, it doesn't matter whether it's deserved. Just look at these people and, and feel it and decide whether or not you think you think it's deserved in this case. Or in a sense, like it's never deserved. Or because the whole system of punishment in all of these stories erases the, the humanity of the people. Uh, but what was interesting is whereas an Escape from Spiderhead or the lottery, there's no one like... Aunt May. Aunt May feels like maybe this girl deserves what she's getting, or maybe at the very least she's really upset that this girl murdered her husband uh, and brought shame on the family. And just the... Well, it's just different to give a brief flicker of a of a point of view in the story that feels close to the to the person being killed that we can identify with and think about. Uh... It really added a lot to me in the story of that little fracture within the family of how they saw the girl. Yeah, I love that interaction with Aunt May is one of my favorite parts of the story because of the contrast that it throws across the rest of the relationships. Because without her, you wouldn't understand how much the mother is potentially sacrificing, potentially subduing inside of herself in terms of judgment of her daughter. You wouldn't understand the the kind of precipice of shame that that the kids are standing on you know by having this sister who's done this terrible thing but then may may is the one who can't suck it up right right and not it's or in another way she is the one that's not well by choosing to stay among the people she shows us that it is absolutely a choice that all of those members in the family make, maybe not the kids, but definitely the mother, to go out there. So as you say, the shame that she's taking on, because Aunt May is distancing herself. Uh, you mentioned before about the system that is is structured or is constructed to, to mean that this death by this awful method of execution exists. And I, it made me think of a, a cognitive effect called uh, learned helplessness, whereby if in your life you are unable to succeed at at small tasks, you then give up and won't even try to succeed at things that look easy uh, or even attempt the things that look harder. 
um, I wrote down the research that this is based on because I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with cognitive biases and logical fallacies and all that stuff. So it was um, a scientist named Seligman in '65 who started started doing horrible research on dogs by giving them electric shocks, and he thought he was well. He was trying to build. Speaking on... of systems of horror, yeah, right, that, that are just as horrible as what's in this story. Well, this this is the parallels in it made me want to to bring it up in it. So he was trying to build on the research of Pavlov, you know, who conditioned dogs to salivate when when food when the bell rings because they think food is coming. In what I understand to be horrific ways. I am not uh up with the details of that, so I probably will not be researching it any further. Well Pavlov, well you should. I mean I mean that's what science is based on in, in some instances. It's true. It's destruction. It's true. Yeah, atom smashing. Yeah. So so while he was electrocuting these dogs and associating it with a bell, he kept them in a harness to restrain them. And then he thought, right, so now I've conditioned them. If I take them out of the harness and I zap them, then they will try they will try and escape the zapping because they're they're free. But actually what happens is they don't try and escape. They just cower in a very frightening, frightened manner. So is the logical fallacy that brutally torturing helpless animals will make you famous. Oh, that is some kind of fallacy <laughs> for sure. Uh, well, one thing, one thing about, uh, I noticed like when you describe it as the, you know, this horrific death that is in the story, like a part of me is like, yes, what's happening to her is horrific. But then a part of me wants to not push what's happening to her away from like the, the executions that happen now, lethal injection and electrocution or, any numbers of other ways that people are killed by the system, by whatever ritual is accepted, because in a in a real sense, they are all horrible. And yeah, I I wasn't trying to to separate it from the kind of executions that happen now. I just I just I because they don't happen here. I don't think about the fact that they do happen in other countries quite so much. Yeah, but I mean, in England, you could put your own whatever systematic atrocity you wanted sure, to yeah, in, in the same place. And the, the point wasn't whether or not you meant it to be distancing, but that that language might and that people that read it might. And one of the things that I love about the story is it grants you the ability, if you want, to imagine this as another world from your own because it's built so beautifully. The The ritualness of it is so rich the 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 wreaths and the flowers that are they're taken mm. out the the sense of, of again like we've talked about in other stories of inevitability uh, that is built into this because there are all these things that just seem to have to happen that people do is amazing and i also i and the language i loved things that you can tell me if these are words that i just don't know but like the pothering wind I do not know that. I don't know word. what that is. And then uh, another word that the boy uses in the stories, he says things like the beautifulest thing. And another place, he says, my my mind went a little breathless, yeah, trying to get all of its thinking done. Whisper weeds and star wines, several gaping mouths of truth. I love that within this story that is in itself like a, a cognitive estranging thing. That there is still there is also all of this beautiful language that is building a world. Mm. Uh, it's part of like what we were saying earlier about the the humor and joy in the story. It is not as though the language is leaden or sinking. You know that in the same way that the family is not entirely surrendering to despair, 
the language in the story doesn't surrender to despair no, either. No, it's buoyant. Yeah, yeah. It's buoyant and direct and really kind of runs along with you. There's a section, a paragraph at the end where they, where she finally sinks under the, the tar and that is where the prose just hits this magical musical stride. So I want to read that. It's a relatively long paragraph. <clears throat> we started up all the ordinary evening songs for putting babies to sleep, for farewelling, for soothing broke-hearted people, all the ones everyone knew so well that they'd long ago made ruder versions and joke songs of them. We sang them plain, following Mama's lead. We sang them straight into Icky's glistening eyes as the tar climbed her chin. We stood tall, so as to see her and she us, as her face became the sunken centre of that giant flower, the wreath. Dash's little drum held us together and kept us singing, as Ick's eyes rolled and she struggled for breath against the pressing tar, as the chief and the husband's family came and stood across from us, shifting from foot to foot, with torches raised to watch her sink away. One of the things that I wanted to say was that at the end of the story, when, when the boy and the family has walked away from the tar and walked away from their sister, the boy who, who has, has faced death and felt you know both younger and older than he's ever been in his life, his mom picks him up after they get off the tar to carry, even though you know he's clearly too big now to be carried by his mother. And he says something at the end of the story that, that leapt out and, and strangled my heart a bit, which was that the thoughts that were all right for everyone else weren't coming now and never would come to me, as if all I could do was watch, but not ever know anything, not ever understand. And, well, when I read that, it, it reminded me of, of parents dying and, and, and your heart breaking and realizing uh, at some point sometimes that, at least for a little while, like when you've gone through something traumatic, gone through a big loss, all of that sense of, of normalness, what we've described as the story existing in, leaves you. Like all, all of these people live their lives as though everything is normal, but you have now been ripped out of that. And all those thoughts that come to everyone else easily won't come to you. And everything you look at, you just can't understand anymore why it works that way. Let us adjourn to the next story. My pick for this week is a story by Karen Russell that is in a very recent issue of The New Yorker. And if you run quick, you can find it online. The name of the story is The Bog Girl. I promise to pick less stories from The New Yorker after I'm dead. <laughs> Karen Russell uh, is one of my favorite writers. And in this story, like so many, I feel like she adopts a tone or a manner that is very near to like your kindly grandmother who occasionally surprises you by either tap dancing or telling you a, the, a story about the time she had to murder an uh, intruder or that one time her nephew... Uh, dug up a girl from a bog and it was his girlfriend for a few months. I guess there's something so sweet about the way Karen Russell writes. It's so kind. Uh, but then just a lot of horrible stuff happens. Uh, or at and least it, horrifying. <laughs> Not necessarily horrible. There, if you if you run quick to the New Yorker site, there is also an audio recording of her reading the story. And that is exactly what she sounds like. Just a kindly <laughs> lady talking about really horrific things yeah and wondrous things and one of the things this reminds me of is tim burton because in this story and a lot of her stories she's really good at combining a sense of the grotesque and a sense of innocence that is particularly poignant when at least partially pinned into a, an adolescent or young person's mindset where 
yeah, everything is changing and weird and scary and new. Uh, so what the, what the story is, it is a story told from two points of view. There is Killian, whose name I know how to pronounce because Emma has repeatedly told me that, that Killian Murphy's name is Killian Murphy. Not any other way you might pronounce the word Killian. It's definitely Killian. Uh, and there's also, what are we going to say, Gillian? Jillian? Jillian. Let's say Jillian. There's also Jillian. I'm going, I'm going is, on Karen's pronunciation. Who is, oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, and there is Killian's mother, Jillian. Two things are happening in the story. One, Killian is, has discovered in a bog on some island off the coast of somewhere near Europe, I love how Karen Russell often, she just sets her story just, in a place. Yeah, just an island somewhere in Northern Europe. Yeah. Any old, any old island that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Uh, he finds a girl that has been buried in a bog for 2,000 years and has been preserved by, as we know, bogs have magical properties. Uh, still, though, I love the, the detail that Karen went into to describe how this could happen. Uh, we'll just go with it. He finds the girl... Uh, much in the way of many of your favorite films, such as Lars and the Real Girl, uh, he decides that this dead girl is his girlfriend. That's not really like Lars and the Real Girl, but anyway. A little like Mannequin. Oh, yeah, it's a bit like Mannequin. We'll, we'll get to that. We're going to get to that. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're going to get to that. Uh, uh, the other thing that is happening is that the mom had her, had her son when she was very young, and it was a kind of embarrassment. It was a mark of shame for her to have this boy. And seeing... Her her son that she decided to have, even though it might be embarrassing, you know, people were like, you're crazy, you shouldn't do it. Seeing her son fall in love with a dead girl is really hard for her because her son is Amazingly. changing. And that is where the story was special to me, was in having not just the point of view of the boy, it was the point of view of, of the mother, of Jillian, that made made me like it a lot you mentioned shame there and for me that was like the fulcrum of this story understanding the mother's shame in getting pregnant so young and in having having a kid so young and then Killian's shame in in not really I guess you know he's going he's at that young mid-teenager kind of level that just discovering that he's naked for the first time in that biblical sense yeah and you know we're told that he stuttered for a long time when he was younger it's very obvious they're they're not a particularly well-to-do family Mm. Uh, he is you know shoveling shit around to afford some really poor used car that the neighbor owns yeah and you can you can tell from from who he is that he really struggles to engage with anybody at school and even his mom and so when he digs this dead body out of the bog it's like all his prayers are answered because here is somebody who can be his girlfriend who he doesn't need to feel ashamed when she looks at him and there's and i'm going to get into projection a bit later as well but <laughs> the way he is so calmed by her cool bland stares the way she doesn't judge him you just you're, oh my heart broke i think thinking of like all the judgment he sees in everybody else the whole time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that is why his mom's story is so amazing to me because particularly the second time I read it, it, it became very, if, if not clear, uh, it became numinously obvious to me that in the same way that he looked at this bog girl as, as a, a face that projected no shame onto him, I, I was seeing, oh, of course, the mom carried this baby who she loved 
before he even existed, when he was just a nameless otter, as Karen Russell describes, an, an unborn child. Uh, and when she had the baby, you can imagine her looking at this boy and not receiving any shame for him. And so the fact that in this story, she begins to try to express to Killian all the things he no longer remembers about being a kid. And she never comes out and says, and I think you're making a horrible choice. But he definitely hears it as a, as a, as a shameful thing. You know, she's saying, why aren't you more like who you used to be? Mm. And so imagining that she used to have this similar relationship to him of seeing him as a blank face that projected no shame. But now as he's changing, he's now throwing shame back at her. This one thing that made sense in her life. Oh, yeah. The shame echo chamber. Yeah. It's what they've, what they've created in their home. The kind of dislocation that happens when when he digs up this body mm. and starts wait, talking to wait. her. Wait, dislocation in the reader's in mind? The reader, yeah. Okay, yeah, not yeah. in like the, the removal of <laughs> the dead girl from the land. No, like joint-based dislocation. So the, the dislocation that happened in my mind <laughs> as I... <laughs> I meant geographic dislocation, not like the dead body was popping. <laughs> um, what happened to me when I was reading this... You know, we're just kind of tumbling through the sentences and he digs up this girl and then he whispers a sentence in her ear and then just like that, he's in love with her and he's taking her home and now she is his girlfriend. And the dexterity with which Karen pulls that off in a couple of sentences is incredible. She moves from something that seems apparently 100% realistic into something that is weird and unrealistic and yet presented as in, as natural amongst the characters in the story i felt like you could all you could almost joyfully retitle the story the dead girl in the room uh because like you say in a way the story revolves around shame and something we know about shame is the way people speak around it and, and bend themselves really hard so like in this story clearly there is a dead girl that the son has brought home but the mom still is like, you can bring her to dinner. That's fine. And the boy is like, oh, man, my mom's really insecure about her cooking. She's, you know, she's really going to feel it when my girlfriend doesn't even touch the food. Uh, and then when he takes the dead girl to school, the principal is like, hmm, let me put a visitor badge on her. <laughs> she's a visiting student. Because if we name the monster, then we know how to deal with it. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, then we have to face it. Yeah, and so similar to like Alan Bennett and the small English town we talked about before. All of these people on this island are not able to talk about the dead girl in the room. Mm. That no one wants to talk about it. They all talk around it. And you, you get to laugh at the, at the visitor badge that's placed on here, at the, the sadness of the mom. Uh, because there is something amazingly absurd uh, in families and in towns where you have if you have mental illness or you have alcoholism or you have whatever, the links with which people will go to build these edifices of normality on it are funny and sad. In some ways, having her around is, is freeing, not just for the son, though, but also for the mother. Because they, they start to do that thing that you sometimes see couples do who kind of want to have an argument but don't really want to. And say they have a dog 
and then they start arguing through the dog right oh tilly wants to go out for a walk is gareth going to take her for a walk no gareth doesn't want to you know and so you just have this kind of vessel or repository for all of their anxiety and worries and hopes and so and she just kind of gets filled up with them through the story that's true and and also in the way that when you fall in love with anyone, so like in when Michael doesn't hate his mother, when Michael falls in love with the girl, in a sense, that girl is his way out of the home. Uh, when the vicar's wife falls in love with the guy at the shop, she falls in love with his beautiful legs and his lentils. Mm-hmm. In a way, she's not following in, falling in love with him. She's falling in love with whatever he represents. And this story really nails, particularly if you look at it from a 15-year-old point of view, but also the mom's point of view and the way she loves the kid nails the the horror and wonder of love that on the one hand you want to be loved as though you are more than yourself and you want to love someone that will give you a way to escape and and to become more and so love love has this unfortunate tendency to erase the object that is receiving it and it's something we struggle with but it's also something that's really useful because it allows people to escape their prisons it can be useful and it it also gives us the opportunity to keep discovering the people that we love anew again and again because you have to work really hard to break down the construct you have of somebody else to let them be themselves and to see how they grow and evolve and so that means that love can be fresh it can be new every day every year right right if 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 the love we had for each other did not destroy each other then the love itself would just fade away into nothing because it is in the the destruction and resurrection of it over and over again and that's why what's so right in the story is that the mom is mature enough that even when she's expressing her sadness of killian changing she never really asks him to stay the same. She's working really hard to accept it, so much yeah. that when he comes back from the prom carrying his dead girlfriend, she has gotten herself into a drunk stupor, but is still like, well, have a good night. You look so handsome. Aww. But Killian, uh, once the story reaches its end, where, I mean, to me, I'm just going to say, God bless Karen Russell for this ending, because his love, in a way, actually does bring the dead girl to life. Uh, which love can do sometimes in a scary way. It can bring people to life. And and when she comes to life, she's in his bedroom after the prom. And as she begins speaking to him, Killian begins to get a little freaked out. And this is the way Karen describes what's happening as he first looks at her as she is alive. Inside the bog girl was casting up a world green and unknown to him or anyone living her homeland. Her gaze drove inward, carrying Killian with it. For an instant, he thought he glimpsed her parents, her brothers, her sisters, a nation of people, their cheeks now beginning to redden, every one of them alive again inside her village, pines rippling seaward, gods, horned and faceless, walking the lakes that once covered Killian's home. Killian was buried in water, in liquid images of her. He had to push through so many strata of her memories to reach the surface of her mind. Most of what he saw, he shrank away from. His mind felt like a burned tongue, numbly touching her reality. That's what, of course, happens is she comes to life, and he sees all of these things that she is. And the most horrifying thing happens, which is that she is in love with him. And exactly like what you say, whereas the the mom is able to face the change of the thing that she loves, 
Killian is young and unable to, and that is his failure, is once the woman that he loves comes to life and is present and is ready to be loved, he does not handle it well. Which, yes, literally in the story, it makes sense because a 2,000-year-old dead person is now alive and speaking a language you do not understand, except for one word. There's only one word he understands that she's saying, which is which is his name. Uh, yeah, and that, to me, it was so beautiful and horrifying. I was so prepared for the whole story to go on where she would be dead. And at some point, the mom and the son would have to reckon with each other rather than what, to me, was this wondrous coming to life that was also terrifying. Yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that that happened and it turned into a nightmare. But the... Um, there's one other one other thing I wanted to talk about. Okay, in story. I got at least one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk about Uncle Sean. He's absolutely yeah. hands down my favorite character in this story. He is the worst slash the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she describes him as uh, as Uncle Sean was as blandly ugly as a big toenail, egg bald and cheerfully unemployed. A third helpings kind of guy. Once, Killian had watched him eat the sticker on a green apple rather than peel it off. (laughs) That is the kind of detail where I'm like, Karen Russell, who did you see do that? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But the other thing. Did you see somebody on a bus? (laughs) Please say more about him. But but he is one of the elements in this story that echoes with Margot and echoes with a lot of Karen. Karen Russell is really good at being really funny no matter what her subject matter is, and at making that humor uh, bring the characters to life. And in the same way, I felt like in Margot Lanigan's story, the humor and, and the, well, the beautiful futility of what that family is doing is not just a joy to read. It's also the, the enlivening force of the people. And so, yeah, Uncle Sean is hilarious. He also suddenly seems like a very real person. <laughs> It reminded me a lot of P.G. Woodhouse mm. and the the way... I think that's he, the kindly grandmother aspect is Britishness. <laughs> the way he introdu- introduces characters and annihilates them in mm. a couple of sentences. Yeah. So you, you feel like, oh, I know what kind of a person you are on the worst day, but also sort of on the best day too. It's really cool in this story that is so much about angles and about what we see when we look at each other and what we choose not to see. Like for example, the bog girl's noose that she just wears all the time yeah. because that's how she died. Uh, but anyway, they... <laughs> uh, I, I want to get your your feedback on this a little bit. Uh-huh. Slash, just throw it out there, which is what I've called the literature of less than real or sometimes really real girls. Yeah. Because we've seen so many movies. Well, I've seen Air Doll. You haven't seen Air Doll or Lars and the Real Girl <laughs> or Her are about the reality or non-reality of that person. And I felt like when I started reading this story, I was like, oh, man, this is hilarious. This is beautiful. But is it going to slot firmly into that framework? And I felt it didn't. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I had that concern. I was like, oh, is it like one of those um, John Green books where you spend the whole <laughs> the whole time figuring out, oh, look, girls are real people, too. But it, to me, it didn't fall into that category, partly because she has other female characters who are in, well fleshed out and interesting and performing important roles but also because that's not really where Killian ends up in his lesson it's not about learning that she's 
a real person or that other people are real people. It's about learning that he's allowed to be a real person and express himself and be yeah, who he wants yeah, to yeah. be. And hopefully that his, his mom is a real person. There's mm. an amazing moment where he realizes before running away from it how much pain his mom has and how much mm. he wants to share with him and be understood. And, you know, that's, that's enacted in the bog girl coming to life. He isn't prepared for that level of pain. <laughs> but maybe running back to his mom, he is prepared for that. Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to talk about all the things and all the stories. So if you want to let us know about anything we've missed, you can hit us up. We are at Storylogical. That is story. Like the word. And O. Like the chemical symbol for oxygen. And you I, need to tell them what it's for. Not don't just I? the chemical <laughs> it's symbol. It's just the one. It is the chemical symbol, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and logical. Like my incredible Casio calculator, which I did my GCSEs with, uh, I have just been reunited with this week. And what is Harry Potter for GCSE? Uh, that'll be the newts. Okay. And I also what I is, kept it with is, me through my owls. What is real life for owls? A-levels. We are taking a break for the summer, but you can keep up with us and see what we're reading by following us on our personal Twitters. You can follow her on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh, which is spelled just like it sounds, except for at, which is spelled with a symbol that is an A with a bunch of lines around it. I don't know why it means that, but it does. It's just part of the framework of our society that we don't question. Except for the pound symbol. We question that. Yeah, and we should. Yeah. That, what is that again? The octopus? Octo- octogram. The octogram? Octonaut. The, the no, octonaut? That's what my little niece watches. <laughs> <laughs> and you can follow him on Twitter at Kuvols. C-U-V-O-L-S. And to catch up on old podcasts, to stare... Uh, mindlessly at the not particularly endless array of gifts, since we only do two perez and are really infinite at all. Uh, and, for, and if you want to catch up on some show notes as well, you can find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. See you next time, readers. Happy reading. So, my pick for this week is Dunder Dundison. His his great uh, epic story, as published in the Oklahoma Schooner. Uh, I really want to read that paper. That paper. The Oklahoma Schooner. Oh, okay. Well, it's a it's, a, it's an out of print magazine. Is it a real thing? No, no, I didn't think so. Like ninety eight percent of stuff that comes out of your mouth. Uh, that's true, and seventy five percent of that is true. In a metaphorical way. And the other 25% is just nonsense. And then there's the 2% that is just direct truth. This is why I tried to say... from God's own uh, mouth. Well, I mean, I don't believe in God, do I? I mean, it could be, though. I mean, in the sense that God is the metaphor, the masks of reality that we wear <laughs> upon the stage. <laughs> Full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Oh, I brought it home. I brought that one home. That made total sense. Let's go again. <laughs> this, sent- this sentence is reversing. Ooh. <laughs> Three, two, 
Oh, remember, we're not going to be back until the end of August. Three, two, one.